I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with another episode of The Showroom, presented by Walker Zanger. We are talking about tile, stone, and designing with slabs featuring Dan Vickery. The Showroom is a collaborative speaker series, a partnership between Convo by Design and Walker Zanger, and featuring some of the most successful designers who offer some of the very same strategies that they employ in their own design firms. Dan Vickery was the runner-up on HGTV's Design Star Season 4. That bittersweet second-place finish launched his design career. It gave him an opportunity to showcase his work on a much bigger stage, and Dan has made the most of it since. Thoughts on reality design shows are mixed, depending on who you ask. In Dan's case, coming from a small town in Oregon, Design Star gave him exposure on a huge platform. It gave him the exposure to show off his skills. From there, Dan has built his personal brand and professional brand, his design firm, and has been creating some truly groundbreaking design ever since. Part of his design specialty includes the selection and use of tile, stone, and crafting finished product from slabs. That is brought about this that is what brought about this conversation. Due to current circumstances, this conversation was virtual. This talk was moderated by Walker Zanger, Director of Marketing, Erica Edigan-Nason. Are you subscribing to Convo by Design to make sure you never miss a new episode? Ask Alexa or Siri to help you. Say, hey Siri, play Convo by Design podcast. And she will. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online, walkerzanger.com. Welcome, everyone. We appreciate you joining us. Uh, my name is Erica Egedenissen. Um, I am so excited to have Dan Vickery join us today in the showroom. Um, Josh Cooperman is going to guide us through this comp- uh, conversation, but we welcome all... Um, chat in the chat room. So I'll be managing that and um, we'll ask all of those questions. So so please do use the chat button and uh, Josh, take it away. Awesome. I love it. You saved, you saved me from the speech. I'll give it anyway. Hi everyone. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, you know, it's really interesting. I, I had a conversation with a designer recently about these very conversations and these, this this platform that we're seeing each other on a screen instead of in person at one of the many events that we, that we usually go to. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. This is the showroom. It's a partnership between Walker Zanger and Convo by Design. Um, I am the host and publisher of Convo by Design, a podcast for you, the design community, as well as the uh, associate publisher and online editor for Interiors California Magazine. Today, we are with Dan Vickery, and Dan, I'm going to let you introduce yourself in just a minute, but we're, we're talking about a lot, of, a lot of things that I think designers are going to find relevant today, from reality TV to uh, slabs, tile, and stone, so I'm, I really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. Um, like Erica said, if you have questions, the chat feature down below, please uh, chat, type your questions in at any time so we can get to them. Um, and we're going to go until, you know, until we're done and we have a hard out at one 30, but, um, having talked to Dan the other day, I'm really looking forward to this. So Dan, maybe you can just give everyone sort of a reminder of where they've seen you before. Cause you look so familiar. 
Well, thanks. Uh, so I grew up in Eastern Oregon, little tiny farm town, went to school at the University of Oregon, but have been in LA for just over 10 years. Uh, I was on season four of Design Star, where I got runner-up, got fan favorite, had an online show with them. I've done some specials with HGTV, a couple of specials on TLC, and um, had a series uh, up in Canada on Canadian HGTV, Love It or List at Vacation Homes, and am currently shooting a new show for HGTV due to air this fall. Assuming COVID lets us continue to air, <laughs> continue to shoot, um, called Frozen in Time with Maureen McCormick, who is most known for her role as Marsha Brady on The Brady Bunch. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> Love that. Um, thank you. You know, I actually wanted to kick off this conversation with one about reality TV, specifically as it relates to design, because, you know, it has changed so dramatically, the same way that um, reality shows have changed since the very first airing of Survivor, right? I remember seeing that for the first time going, this is amazing. I don't know what I'm watching. But design shows have become so sophisticated and they've, they've, they've changed so much. And you're, you're one of those designers who has sort of grown with the medium. So I'm curious, coming, especially coming from Oregon, you know, how did you, how'd you get found? How were you, how were you spotted? And sort of how have you managed the, the TV and the entertainment side of the business? Uh, well, I actually auditioned for season three of Design Star and they told me that I was on and they said, have your bags back, be ready to go. We're gonna call you this morning with the information. We can't share too much too quickly. And they called me the morning I had my bags back ready to fly out and said, sorry, you're not on the show. You were the alternate. So <laughs> my, my first step into uh, television was not necessarily a warm one. I didn't apply for season four and they called me and asked where my application was. And uh, at that point I applied and the rest is history. It's been going gangbusters ever since. But I think the biggest thing that has changed is um, the time, right? A lot of reality shows are just about creating that tension and in the moment and really strict timelines that you don't have in real construction. And uh, in an effort to make TV more realistic and more relatable, a lot of these shows have gone with real timelines, real budgets, and um, we're able to create much better design because of it. Do you remember when, when you auditioned, you know, you, you, were, you came out of the University of Oregon with a degree in architecture and you worked in Portland. Um, what was your expectation? Because um, I, like, I feel like reality TV for the design community, for the trade, is a tool. It's a mechanism to get exposure. What, what were your expectations for that? Did you have any that you recall? Um, like I said, I, I grew up in a small town in Eastern Oregon. My dad was a farmer. Um, I learned so much from him. He, like to this day, is a jack of all trades. We rewired our house, put in a new kitchen. You could build the furniture. Uh, build the house and I owe so much of my love for design to him. I also uh, grew up in a quilt shop. My mom and grandma um, developed their own quilts and patterns and uh, learned about color and texture and pattern matching and everything from them. So uh, architecture seemed like a great fit, but interior design was really the place where I could put everything together. And I went into Design Star back in 2009 thinking this like all American dream, right? If you work hard, you can do it and it takes so much more than hard work. And uh, although that's a great element, I wasn't prepared for the politics and the logistics <laughs> playing this reality game that is required on a reality TV show. So I'm glad that even though it's reality TV, technically that we're doing on these design shows, it's no longer a competition show because that was rough. So that's a really interesting point too, the difference between a design show and a competition show are, are very, very different. I, I don't think either necessarily represents design in, in the real world, but those two are so different. I mean, the competition shows, the biggest frustration for designers that I've heard, and maybe you can attest to this, is the lack of prep time, the lack of the time to do the craft, to do your job, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, People watch design on TV a lot, and I do too. I, I, I get it. It's exciting, but it's very produced. So you always have these, as Oprah would say, these aha moments where, you know, you walk in and you instantly know what you're going to do. And that's not usually how design works. Like, 
I call it my incubation period where I go in, I take all the information and it took me a while to absorb it because there's so many elements to design. You know, when it comes to the durability of the materials, how they're all going to work together, do they fit inside the client's budget? So to immediately come back with a design is nearly impossible. Um, and the competition show doesn't allow you that time to incubate. You got to just have an instinct and run with it. I think that's a really interesting point too, especially as it relates to the artistic side of, of designers, right? What you learn from TV, if you're paying attention, is that you have to take advantage of those moments, right? And those moments happen in, in real life too. And sometimes if you're not cognizant of them and aware of them, as a designer, you miss them. And do you feel like you sort of, like it was a, it was a training ground for you to learn maybe the media side of design, the, the moments, how to capture the moments, how to, how to maybe, I don't know if this sounds right, but how to script your work? Uh, yeah, I would say very much. I grew up in a family full of artists, and I think that I try to let art drive my design as much as possible, but at the end of the day, it always has to be functional. So that was an opportunity to really just like push the art and push the um, experience that I wanted the user to have first and then make sure that the function followed. And when you slow down and take the time, I feel like it almost becomes the opposite. The function becomes first and sometimes you lose the art. And that's sad because there's so many great moments and so many great materials out there. And what I love about design is it's constantly evolving, right? It's 2020, design has been going on for hundreds of years, but every year there's so many new materials out there. And if you work with your vendors, talk to your contractors, you can come up with new and interesting ways to make these materials work for you in a way that they weren't necessarily anticipated to be used. I love that you bring that up because that's a, that is really a great segue into sort of into what we're talking about today. See, you've totally learned the media game. I, I love it. They, you yeah. set it up for uh, me. Not a little practice, Josh. I'm on your side. <laughs> <laughs> you just set it up. It's a softball pitch. Um, yeah. You know, when we talk about materials, and it's really interesting. I was, I was, I've been really looking forward to this conversation with you because as I tell people all the time, I, I'm neither an architect nor a designer. I'm just a, I'm a fan. I'm a journalist. And I love telling the stories or really allowing you to tell the stories because you're the, you're the craftsman, you're the artist, you're the creator, um, and your stories are amazing. Something interesting that ha happened to me this week as I was preparing for this, we're talking, about, we're talking about stone, and we're talking about slabs. And I had a designer talk to me about this, who, who actually, who said, and I appreciate their honesty, it's someone I, I respect and I love their work, and they said, you know, I'm, I'm a little nervous, I'm still nervous um, about, slabs because you know pre-cut tile it's 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 a known quantity that it's it's much easier to work with slabs are like the wild wild west of materials there's so much that goes into it and the first thing i wanted to ask you about is specifically when it when it comes to to slabs regardless of the material that you're that you're choosing be it you know granite or 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 you know marble the the relationship between the showroom, your your fabricator, and the designer. Mm -hmm. When when did you first? Do you feel comfortable? And comfortable is a relative word. But when did you first start working at the way you do with these materials and doing it with a with a level of comfort that you do? Um, so I was working for a home builder, uh, like custom residential builder in Portland, right out of school, uh, designing custom homes. And it was a small business. It was me and an interior designer running the entire design for as many as, you know, 13 to 20 houses being built at the same time. And I was relying a lot on the interior designer and she was relying a lot on me and we're all nervous, right? This is something that somebody's going to live with for hopefully the rest of their life, if not a long, long time. And countertops get beat up. So it has to be not only a beautiful material, but an incredibly durable material. Um, and interior design is huge, right? We're dealing with fabrics, 
furniture, wood, tile, slabs, like there, it's too much knowledge for any one person to hold in their head. So I rely really heavily on my vendors and my contractors. I am learning every day. It's one of the best parts of my job, but I can't be on the cutting edge of all of the technology at all times. So I've been in the showroom with Erica many times, <laughs> walking in the slab room, talking about slabs, like just running up to something like, oh my gosh, I love this. I want to put this in the house and she'll shake her head and say it's too soft. You know, you can do it, but it's going to eventually deteriorate and fall apart. This is something, you know, that we would use in a bathroom, not a kitchen. And it's that back and forth, I think, that develops those opportunities for great design where if I do absolutely fall in love with something, I'm not going to just take no for an answer. I might push it. I might, you know, do my own research and technology um, developments and try to figure out how we can make this product stronger why it's weak and if the answer ends up being no that's what it is and now i know for the future but we may be able to use the material in a way that nobody originally intentioned and everybody ends up happy because of it everybody wants a one-of-a-kind kitchen how, how exciting is that too and i think that that's one of you know, for me as an outsider kind of looking in that would be one of the most exciting aspects of this for me for someone like you um, as, as incredibly talented as you are to basically get, have resources for someone to say, you know, here's how, here's what you can do with the material. Here's the performance value. Here's how it's going to work. You know, what can you do with it? Do you have, do you have one fabricator, one manufacturer that you, or a fabricator that you work with primarily, or do you have different ones basically for different tasks? Oh, just like a doctor, I always get a second opinion. You do. <laughs> if my favorite guy says, no, I can't do that, I've got a list of guys and I'm going to call the next one on the line and say, are you sure? Because I think this is going to be fantastic. And maybe I'm stubborn. Um, maybe it's just passion. Like it could, it's two sides of the same coin, right? Sometimes our best assets are our worst. But when I have a vision, I do everything I can to see it through. And like I said before, if the answer is no, I can accept that. But I'm not going to accept that no until I've pushed every avenue possible. And, you know, if you're told a certain sort of stone is too soft, is there a sealant out there that I can put on it to make it stronger? Uh, if it's polished, is it more durable than if it's honed? You know, what can I do to manipulate this material to make it work for me? So backing up a second, um, I'm curious what kind of shopper you are. I've, I've sort of determined that there's, there's really two types. Um, there's the type that wants to go in and look at slab after slab after, and you want to just look at them and feel them and knock them around a little bit. And then there's the kind that will do a little bit of research prior to going in and maybe have an idea of what, what you want when you get there. The, you know, conversely, one side is, you know, performance-based, the other side is I'll know it when I see it, and then I'll try to figure out if it can work for what I want it to do. Uh, I would say I'm somewhere in the middle. I generally have an idea of what material I'm looking for going in, and um, may have some inspiration images, may have specific uh, material types listed that I'll go in and ask Erica if she has this available. But at the end of the day, when you're in a space, it's about how you work in it, and it's more about how it it's not as much about how it looks as it is about how you interact with it. So I want to sexually assault these materials, right? I want to get my hands on them. I want to know how it feels. I want to know how it's going to function. I want to know how to get everything I want out of it. And <laughs> that you can't do that without being in the showroom. So here's the other part of that too. And, and I, I didn't realize this recently, you know, for those watching, you will, you will hear, or listening when we replay this on Convo by Design as, a, as an episode, you will hear Dan constantly refer to Erica. Erica is, is with Walker Zanger. I didn't really realize this before, but you've got a very long relationship with Walker Zanger. I want to say it, it goes back a, about a decade. Yes? Yeah, I first started working with Walker Zanger in 2009 when I first moved to LA. And to this day, they're my go-to for tile and slab. And I think that that's really important. And I'll tell you why, because nowadays it's so, it's challenging and it's hard to find people who, who have your back. You know what I mean? And especially when it, let's be, let's be real frank and honest 
for a minute. Mistakes are made all the time, especially in design. The wrong product is specified. Maybe the wrong slab shows up. Maybe you know, things go wrong all the time. But the, the, the telltale sign of, of a true partner is the one that you know they have your back at all times and they work with you through those things. And it sounds to me like you have this, this relationship with Walker Zanger as a, as a manufacturing partner of yours. And I'm, I'm just curious, as, as you build that relationship, it seems like it's a huge part of your business. It's all the, I mean, that is the foundation of my business is I have been in LA for 10 years. I have worked with multiple vendors and multiple manufacturers and some of them have let me down, you know, and there are some great tile shops in Los Angeles. And there's some that some people might consider more high end than Walker Zanger. And I don't want to say Fansex, but <laughs> they, there are certain stores that just assume that business is going to come to them and they don't work for it. Walker Zanger has a great product. They are always working for me, and that's why I keep going back. I, I can ask a question and know I'm going to get an honest answer in response and that I'm not going to let my clients down because of it. So I'm curious, too, throughout this, this experience, uh, the, the COVID-19, coronavirus, pandemic, um, as we seem to be coming out of it, I know, whatever you want to call it, right, Erica? Um, as we seem to be coming out of this now, and California, we're at, we're, at the, we're at the precipice of California opening up again. I'm curious, throughout this, for the last 10 weeks, you know, it's not like somebody can send you a, a small tile of an entire slab, because the, the, the mere nature of the slab is that you have all of this real estate from within which to work. How have you been specifying, shopping, looking, assaulting slabs during this time? Um... Actually, I mean, as luck would have it, this has happened at a very good time in my schedule. I had just wrapped up a bunch of projects. I have a bunch of projects getting ready to launch. So I have been in touch with my vendors about products. I just last week started going back out to showrooms and uh, collecting samples, collecting materials, seeing entire pieces because it's more than just slab. I mean, if you're looking at flooring and someone sends you a six inch sample, you don't know, right? There, it could still be full of knots full of extra distressing that you don't see in that one piece. So um, I don't know how I would have dealt with it. Honestly, I think I would have told some of my clients to just put stuff on hold because if you're going to live with this for the rest of your life, four weeks isn't going to make a difference. Um, but like I said, I've, I've been fortunate where the timing of all of this has worked very well with my schedule. What are your, some of your favorite techniques um, to do with slabs? We had a conversation in advance of this. And I, I sort of have to share the fact that I am not an expert on, on tile, stone, slabs, marble, granite. I mean, as a, I'm a fan of beautiful things and I'm a fan of craftsmanship and of work, but there are certain things that you walk in and you look at a slab. I can look at a slab with certain types of veining and see one thing. You can look at that same slab and knowing what you know with that institutional knowledge and even working with your, with your fabricator to say, hey, you know what, if I split it here, flipped it around, I could get a waterfall with a vein. See, I just learned this this week. You can do things like that. And I'm, I'm curious how, how, you, how you approach the material itself. Um, it's that inspiration. So uh, the, we had a conversation before and uh, I was talking about a particular slab where it was technically a marble slab, but it had veins of uh, green and blue quartz running through it. A kind of a one of a kind slab, absolutely stunning. And I didn't want to break it up. It would have been really easy to cover this island with a seam down the middle and a waterfall edges where the countertop finishes down the edge to the floor uh, for anybody who doesn't know. And I wanted that veining to run from one floor across the countertop and down to the next floor. Um, but once we put a solid slab on top with no seams, the next slab didn't line up on both ends. And when you get a slab from a slab yard, normally one side is finished. But I sat with the manufacturer and we figured out that if we actually turned the slab upside down and I had them refinish the unfinished side, we could get that veining to nearly line up perfectly and have this like solid stripe of color running all the way across. So 
the manufacturer didn't want to do it. <laughs> He'd already given me a timeline and now I was adding extra work to that timeline. But, you know, we worked together and we came up with a solution that created something that looked like it came right out of the ground. And I think that's one of the best parts of design is when it's so natural that you don't see all the work that goes behind it. If you can see the work, you probably overworked it. And uh, if it looks really simple and really seamless, you know it wasn't. So is it fair to say too that one of the things that, that you do, you know, that I'm picking up on, which I think is remarkable, is not just to take things at, really at face value, especially when you're looking at a slab, is go look at the backside. You know, it's not, it's not, it's probably not polished, right? But to be able to look at it and see what your potential is on the backside might open up something that you hadn't considered before. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of that honestly goes back to my background. Like I, I grew up on a farm. We didn't have access to a lot of things, if nothing else, because of our location. And if you wanted to do anything, whether it was just fix up a maternity barn for the cows or, um, you know, redo a part of the house, you had to rely on yourself to do it because there weren't vendors around and you had to rely on materials at hand. And I just grew up in this family, in this culture of what have we gotten? How can we make this work for us? So it was like kind of ingrained in me before I was in a position to really take advantage of it. I'm curious. One of the things that I've, that I've noticed having spoken to designers and architects for as long as I have um, and I might have mentioned this when we spoke before, is that when I first started doing interviews with designers, I, I would ask a question that, you know, now I look back and it's kind of cringy for me, um, not because it's a stupid question, but because it's pedestrian. I would ask, you know, what's your, what's your style or what's your, what's your favorite, what's your signature style? Not your favorite, because that's different, but what's your signature style? And I realized that some of the best designers, some of the best creators, they don't have a style because the by the mere nature of their their art and their work they can do whatever they're asked to do but what i did notice is that the best all seem to have a fingerprint like you can look at their work and the style will be vastly different but you can always tell by the craftsmanship and you can tell by the by the 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 style that they that they in which they perform the work that it's that fingerprint that makes their work so special you're very much like that and i'm curious growing up in an environment where you had to manufacture materials, where you had to look at, you had to work with what you had to make it work. Has that affected your, your high-end design now? Because you can find whatever you want, right? Yeah. I, I think it's affected me in a great way. Um, you're right, everybody asks, what's your style? And I feel it's a hard thing to answer as a designer because people are always looking for a specific answer. And if you don't give the answer they're looking for, they assume that you're not going to be able to do what they want. And like you said, that's not necessarily true. A great designer takes your client's style and elevates it. You know, it's obviously always going to have an influence of what I personally think is great. But I think that my design is like contemporary or historic. I, I don't, I'm personally not drawn to homes that look like they were built, right? I didn't, where everything is the greatest, newest, technology because it has no history and if it doesn't have a history then in five years it's going to look five years old as soon as you start to integrate you know layers of design whether it is the architecture whether it's the furniture you give the home a story and that story can continue to grow but if it doesn't have a story to start with it's almost missing its soul so the the materials and reintroduction and uh, different ways that you can use that adds to that story. You know, you can say like, look, this used to be a paneling in the dining room. We completely remodeled this house, but we kept the paneling and we reused it here as a surface treatment. And then the house still keeps its original story. Um, I, I wouldn't have that. I, like, I wouldn't have the drive to do that if I didn't grow up that way. I mean, we were building forts on a ditch in the backyard when I was three and four years old. And it was that, right? Like just grabbing a tarp, grabbing some old logs that dad wasn't using anymore and making something that then progresses into this, like how do we take that creativity and that interest and make it something that's really beautiful and really elegant. So along those lines, you know, we were talking before about 
taking product and changing product and and making it uh, making it do different things and we started talking about we had a conversation before about porcelain um and the use of porcelain and this this Socolo i method where you're you're basically taking a, a thinner version of it so that you can use it in different ways um and you were telling some great stories i was wondering if you could sort of re repeat the the way that that you can use this and the things that you could do with it now that maybe we couldn't do with this type of product before right so I mean, tiles used to be made small because, I mean, tiles have been made for thousands of years, right? And they were always made by hand. And um, we've just, like, companies have started developing the technology to make slabs, like five foot by eight foot giant tiles that are less than a half inch thick. And they're one of the most durable materials that man can make. So to be able to put that on a countertop, have it clean, have it beautiful, and know that it is going to last for the next hundred years, versus a marble countertop, which is maybe going to last for the next five if it's not properly treated, is a great gift to give to your clients. You don't want them to have to worry about things, right? My grandma used to say, you know, the, the little stuff will get you down. And that is like when a big moment in your life comes, you deal with it because you're forced to. But it's the little things like the dishes and the kids and the laundry and stuff that like pile up because if you're not always paying attention to it, it'll ruin you. And you don't want your countertops, you don't want your home, you don't want your space to be one of those things, right? Everything should be as seamless and easy as possible so that people can focus on the big things and not worry about the little things. There was Actually, also- I, Sorry to jump in, but we um, got a question in chat and it, the question was, what's easier to install, a porcelain or a stone slab? And what's the pros and cons? And I think we've, um, Dan sort of touched on the pros and cons. So I think we've answered that part. Um, uh, Dan, do you have any insights on the installation of porcelain slabs over over stone, or well, like talk everything, to fabricators about that? Yeah, I, I, for, there's there's two issues. Um, they like a stone has got a veining and a pattern running all the way through it, so you can cut it however you want, and you'll always see that. A uh, porcelain countertop has only got the pattern on the top and then the edge is revealed porcelain. So you're forced to do an eased edge with that, which is my favorite, but if it's not yours, then that's going to be a problem for you. Uh, the other issue is because it is a fairly new technology and it requires a different blade to cut it, some manufacturers are a little bit hesitant and may charge you more just because it's a new technology. Uh, I Like everything new, it starts out expensive and it starts to fade. I think the next two or three years, we're going to see porcelain countertops be um, comparative, if not less expensive, uh, than a stone slab or a quartz slab. But the long-term benefits are well worth the initial cost. And as far as the care, they're way easier to care for. Oh, there's almost there's no care. Yeah, I mean, you you think about a porcelain tile in your shower that's you know been there since the 1950s. That's part of the reason why these bathrooms aren't getting redone because. They're lasting. We don't like the way they look, but they're durable. <laughs> exactly. Well, and there's new uses too, which I think is really interesting. You had also mentioned before, which it bears repeating, that you know you can now take a a thinly cut porcelain and put it up around a kitchen vent, a kitchen hood, and create an entirely new look. Well, and I think that's the other great thing about a porcelain is that stone is what it is, right? We, we can't manipulate it. We can go into the slab yard and we can select different stones. Porcelain, depending on your manufacturer, can be anything. It can come with a hone finish. It can come with a marble look. It can come looking like a piece of slate. So it can look as natural or as unnatural as you want if you, depending on the sort of design that you're trying to push. You talk about stone and, and the fact that you, you can't change it, but there are some ways that you can actually. And we were talking about, before we were talking about Terrazzo. Mm -hmm. And I, I love your ideas and thoughts on Terrazzo and how, how you can use it and how you have used it. And I'm wondering if maybe you'd share some of your, some of your favorite uses for that. Yeah. So uh, for anyone who's not familiar, Terrazzo is a, it's a art form that's been around for hundreds of years. It was started by the Italians where you would take um, pieces of granite, glass, other stones, sometimes shell, and mix it in with a really fine grain concrete, and then sand it down to a really smooth finish. Uh, it's 
used to this day in a lot of commercial spaces. I'm sure we've all seen it in an airport, but um, just by changing the scale of the materials that are put into it, it feels like a totally new material. And Walker Zanger does have a uh, new slab out, well, fairly new, uh, where terrazzo is a full slab and not just tiles, right? We have this technology where everything doesn't have to be made by hand, so the scale of it can increase, just like the porcelain slabs. Um, I put it into a home recently that was on the beach, and it was perfect because it did what we were talking about. It added to the story. It had a sense of instant history. It felt like it could have been there for a long time. And then you get this beach feel because of the glass and the shell uh, that are inside of it. But it's almost something that you don't have to think about, which is another thing that I try to influence in design or try to put in every design where it tells a story, right? You should see it, get it, understand it, know that it's beautiful. And you should instantly want to walk up and touch it. And you should enjoy that experience. And then three or four years later, you should discover something about it that you didn't know, which is that like, oh, there's actually shells in my countertop? I had no idea. And those are the things that keep design alive, where there, there's layers of interest and intrigue that you wait for people to discover. I, I love that. And I love that you said that because it's absolutely true. I mean, the surprise and delight that you can look at something five years later and, be, and say, you know, wait a minute, I didn't, I didn't know there were shells in that. But it's interesting too, isn't it, that if this is a material that they would use on the floor, uh, on the floor of an airport, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to do okay in your house. Yeah, it's, and that's the whole point is we're not creating any extra worry or stress for the clients. Where if anything, we're reducing it anytime we can. Yeah, and this is also a product that is heavily used in, in South Florida, Palm Springs, mm -hmm. and any other mid-century modern location, simply because it is. Um, I'm, I'm curious, too, about maybe some, some different types of materials. You know, specifically what comes to mind is, is marble. And I think that there is, a, there is a healthy fear of marble on some, on some parts. And, you know, you explain it so elegantly and eloquently about here's what to be afraid of. If you take care of it, you have to, you have to make a commitment to marble, don't you? Well, yeah. Elegant and eloquent. I'm eloquent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I like, it's a conversation because um, it has been a fad for the last, I would say eight to 10 years to have marble in your kitchen. And like, there's no denying that it's visually stunning, but it's a lot of work and a lot of labor. And there's always a conversation with clients at the beginning when they say, I want this, like, okay, but get ready because you're going to be uh, sealing this every year. And if you forget, you're going to pay for it. If you spill red wine, if you spill lemon juice, it's going to start to eat into the stone. It's been around for a long time because it's stunning but it is also very soft. And like, maybe we can put this in your bathroom instead. <laughs> no acid. Um, the, I don't know. I, I love that we're getting away from the marble a little bit, though. Like, kitchens for so long have been white. And white is beautiful. White has this association with being sterile, which everybody wants in their kitchen. You know, you can wipe it down, see that it's white, know that it's clean. Uh, versus something like a black granite countertop, which you know people were getting away from for a long time. But as we were talking, if you refinish it in a different way, it can have a totally different look. We've all seen a 90s kitchen with a polished black granite countertop, and it, it makes you cringe. But by honing it, it has that touch me experience that we were talking about before too, where it's just, it's a hard, durable material that's gonna last a long time but it feels soft. You feel like your countertop is covered in leather. And that's something that's not going to go away. So those conversations, sometimes the clients come back and say, yeah, okay, that sounds great, but I really want white marble. And at that point, it's up to them. I've given them all the information I can. They know the risk that they're taking. And uh, if we can push them in a direction that is going to be better for their lifestyle, then that's what I'm here to do. One innovative product that we're not really allowed to talk or show um, images from the project, but Dan, you did just use our Magna, which is made out of recycled glass um, in a bathroom. And that's, that's, that's a, that's glass slabs is also another innovation that we're just going to see a little bit more and more of. And I think especially as 
COVID may affect design. I think that's that glass labs is probably an area that we might see a little bit more use from. Right. So this is one of those instances where I was trying to tell a story and uh, Erica showed me the Magnus Labs and it is literally like tiny chunks of recycled and broken down bottles smashed together and melted down just enough to join, but you can still see all of the seams. So we did a, it comes in a brown, a blue, a clear, a light green, a dark green, like any color that a glass bottle comes in, um, made over in Germany. But it told the story for me, right? That was an instance where I didn't have to add anything to it. I didn't have to manipulate it. The material was already telling the story and uh, that was in that same beach house. And it went in the bathroom because glass, while a beautiful and durable material, uh, can scratch. So maybe not a great material to use in your kitchen where you've got pots and pans and stuff constantly scratching the surface, but uh, in a bathroom where soap is the hardest thing that's gonna get on it, it's fantastic and you can see into it and it's reflective and absorptive and the, if you have a chance to look it up or see it in person, go for it. It's a stunning material and I agree with you, Erica, we're gonna see so much more of this. How, how is that material to work with and fabricate? Is there, is there anything difficult about it? Uh, the fact that it is glass and it has some transparency means that you can see through to the uh, rough top of your counter. So we had to just, you know, walk through with a manufacturer who never uses before the necessary steps. Instead of just putting down rough ply, we had to paint it. Instead of using your standard adhesive, we had to use an adhesive that was white or clear because you were going to see through it. But then with a white background and sconces and lights coming down on it, it creates this instant luminosity that looks like it's almost underlit without being. Does that also give you the opportunity? I'm just, I, I'm imagining you get a new toy, you get this new product where you can actually affect the treatment that's underneath. You can, you can actually try some new things underneath that might reflect through that you hadn't considered before. Well, yeah, or it's that fear that you were talking about before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that too. You never use this, right? So yeah. that point, you, you go into instant like fight mode, like, okay, what could possibly go wrong? What can I do to make this as right as possible from the get-go? And uh, again, like we're saying, it's about relationships. Like I relied on uh, Erica and Mar Marisol from uh, Walker Zanger. Like, okay, I haven't ever done this. I need your help. I want to make this fantastic. What do I do? And, and that's an interesting question too, because it leads into sort of the next phase and sort of the, the discovery part of the conversation. Kitchens have taken a turn over the last five years. Um, and I first noticed this at KBiz a couple of years ago. There is an approach to artistic backsplashes that I, I hadn't seen before that. There is a, is a conscious effort on the part of the appliance manufacturers to take certain appliances and put them in drawers. To take, to take certain things that you would normally see to make them unseen, that the cabinet manufacturers provide you know, these opportunities for paneling, that enables the designer to look at new opportunities. And I've seen some just some stunning things done. I think um, some of your projects as well. I'm curious, your, your idea about the artistry in the kitchen and the artistry in the bathroom, specifically as it relates to these materials, that's allowed you as a designer to, to tell a, a more detailed story? Well, I think it's all about the intention. And um, it's design is always a balance, right? You want to create points of interest that people are drawn to, but you don't want so much going on that it's chaotic. And a, you can have a busy, like highly veined countertop because it's flat and your eye like grazes across it. But the second you take a material with that much interest and put it up on a backsplash, you're constantly looking at it. So that can be a great feature, but then because it's so busy, how do you balance that in a kitchen? Maybe you do that by making all of your cabinets seamless and like you say, do a panel ready refrigerator so that it literally disappears behind the wood and it matches the rest of the cabinetry. Same with the dishwasher, anything that's utilitarian and you can kind of whitewash in your design can actually work for you. 
Um, and then there's moments like a stove. You know, stoves have come a long way. They don't just function for us. They've become pieces of art. So how do we highlight that? And how do we accent that? And, you know, if we've got this fantastic range, which because it's getting hot, because it's always being washed, we can't cover it in anything. It just is what it is. But we highlight it with a recess hood that is surrounded by a stone. So now we've got a statement from floor to ceiling that joins the two materials together and creates a focal point that allows you to not realize like, oh, I don't even see a refrigerator in here. Well, that's because it's hidden behind a wall, but you didn't notice and you didn't think about it because you're so focused on the beauty of the backsplash and the stove and the hood. Don't you find too, maybe this is a stupid question, it's fine if it is, but one of the things I notice is sometimes I've walked, I've walked into kitchens before where things are so well hidden that I can't find them. <laughs> I, have, I have walked into a, a kitchen before and been unable to find the refrigerator just by the mere panel, everything's paneled or everything's in drawers, couldn't find a thing, um, which I think is kind of a cool, a cool touch if you're the homeowner and you know where everything is, but I, you think you kind of run the risk of uh, over, overcomplicating the room? Yeah, you can. I mean, <laughs> listen, we entertain, but I don't want to have to go get every guest every single drink. I want to be able to say, go to the kitchen and get your own. <laughs> if they can't find the fridge, that's a big problem. Yeah. Um, it, it's like I said, it's all a balance. And yeah. it, depending on the scale of your cabinet doors and drawers, if there's one that's three feet wide and six feet high, you know, that's the refrigerator. If you're trying so hard to hide the refrigerator that you have multiple panels that same size, all of a sudden you have people digging through everything in your kitchen and that's like a guest going through your medicine cabinet, right? It happens, but we don't want it to. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, it's, uh, I would say at that point it becomes the drive of the client. If they're more interested in the form over the function, then that's what happens. They want a seamless, completely homogenized design. You're going to end up with a bunch of panels that are exactly the same and your refrigerator is going to get hidden. If you've got a client who wants function first, then you push that and you break up the panels and all of a sudden the refrigerator comes ve becomes very obvious, even though it is painful. Um, I wanted to actually touch base on this in the few minutes that we, that we have left. I wanted to actually know, what can you tell us about the new show? When does the new show come out? So we are still airing and uh, we are hoping to be on HGTV end of July, but if we can't get started shooting really soon, that may not happen, but sometime this fall for sure. How much can you talk about the idea and the concept? Can you talk about it? Yeah, uh, so the show is called Frozen in Time, and like I said, my co-host is Marie McCormick, uh, Marsha Brady, and uh, we are taking houses that are stuck in the 50s, 60s, or 70s, and bringing them to the future, but holding on to the best parts of that era. So there was such a boom in design starting in the 50s, especially in America, that there's a lot of things that people crave now. Like everything has become so sleek that I think we are losing like the human nature of design. And to like mix the two is a great opportunity. Aside from avocado and harvest gold, are there any, do you have any favorites Things that you've seen from past generations that when you see again, you, you, go out, you try to save, you try to reincorporate into the design. Are there any things like that? Or is everything just individual on a case by case? Um, I think that there's different things from different eras. So 1950s design really became about integrating nature into design. And I feel like that's something we've lost. Like we are, for some reason, continuing to separate ourselves from nature and like big open windows, bringing plants inside, wood paneling on the walls. I'm not promoting 1950s wood paneling, but the idea is good. And that, you know, continued to influence design up through the 70s where you would have ranch homes with big open vaulted ceilings and floor to ceiling windows that for the first time started to work their way up into the gables and take advantage of every inch of sunlight. And then they, instead of paneling on the wall, would bring the nature in with, uh, beams and a ceiling joists and exposed wood up above you that, you know, in a way, whether you think about it or not, are mimicking tree branches over your head. And we've gotten to a point where everybody is trying to make a house as cheap as they can, right? Every design I do, a contractor is looking at saying, I can do this for this price per square foot. And the client immediately says, well, that's over my budget. 
and they want to get it down. And that's when you start to lose those things. So you're always going to have an, a heating and air conditioning. You're always going to have plumbing. There are things that cost a certain amount, but it's the things that you touch and the things that you see that create the experience in the home. And they may increase your price per square foot to build, but they're the things that you're going to appreciate the most down the road. If there, is there a, an era in all of the eras, you know, because the design was, is vastly different between the 50s, 60s, and I think then there was a major shift in the 70s. And then there was, again, a major shift in the 80s into maybe halfway through the 90s. And then again, it's interesting how these shifts take place. Do you have a, do you have a favorite era? Not that you want to design it or even live in it, but do you have a favorite? Um, to be honest, I think, like, I mean, it's easy to say today is the best day, but we have really reached a point where people are starting to appreciate everything that they've lost. And people aren't as quick to just get rid of things, right? We've reached an age of like reusing and recycling. And that can be done in a lot of different ways, whether you're taking an old, beautiful appliance and having it reworked so that, you know, it's a natural gas versus propane, um, or you are just going out and taking reclaimed wood and bringing it into your home versus a sheetrock wall. Uh, there's a growing appreciation for things with historic value and for not just throwing things away and moving on to the next new thing. And it's really influencing design and doing what I love most, telling a story. Absolutely. And cannot wait for the show. So I, I wish you Godspeed. Best of luck when it comes to that. I hope, I hope you, you guys get back to production uh, sooner rather than later. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the time here. And for you guys who are, who are watching, for everyone watching, please go to Dan's website. Because um, I was telling him when he first got here that the cocktails that he's making on, on the website um, are amazing. And I've already learned two recipes and I can't wait to try them out. So um, Walker Zanker, uh, Erica, thank you very much for doing this. Dan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Josh. It's been great. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for making the time. Thank you, Walker Zanger, for being an absolute joy to work with. Your partnership is greatly appreciated. Thank you again, Thermosol, for your support of Convo by Design. And thank you for listening to the show, subscribing to the podcast, and coming out to our events. Thanks for listening. And until next week, be healthy, be well, and keep creating.